Thank you for leading us. You may be seated, and if you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and um, as you are turning there, I just want to uh, say a quick word. Um, and your bulletins have a different scripture than what we're looking at today. Uh, your, your bulletins and the kids' notes revolve around uh, verses 17 through 32. Uh, originally, a couple of weeks ago, I was planning to be there today. That didn't quite work out. We're still in the first half of Ephesians 4. We began that last week. We're going to complete our look at that today. So again, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, verse 1. And actually on the screen there, if you can, there's a way that you can get back to the beginning of the chapter we're going to look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. And if you need a Bible, by the way, just uh, raise your hand, and uh, we'll get one over to you. Got somebody up here who needs a Bible? Thank you, Heather. Ephesians 4, verse 1. We're going to read on down through verse 16. Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that we would be a people who would not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so I pray this morning, Father, that we would be fed by you, that we would read your word, embrace your word, understand your word, love your word, and have faith in your word. Help us to do that this morning, Father. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, one of my favorite moments in the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the third movie in that trilogy, Return of the King. And uh, in that movie, you've got the character uh, Aragorn. And Aragorn is, uh, well, he, he's a ranger. And, 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 and these stories, rangers are these guys who they live in the wild, they live in the wilderness, they kind of wander around, they, they do good, they, just, they help people. And, and he's, this, he's this ranger. But actually, he's a lot more than that. He's got an identity uh, that is much greater than that. He actually has royal blood running through his veins, and he is heir to a throne. He is supposed to be a king. And in the movies, he kind of resists that a little bit. He's not fully embracing that calling upon him, and, 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 and the forces of darkness are getting stronger, and he's supposed to lead the charge against the forces of darkness and, uh, and overthrow the bad guys, and, and there's a part of him that is resisting fully embracing who he really is. And, and one of my favorite moments in that final movie is when he is confronted uh, uh, by another character who challenges him, and he tells Aragorn, he says, put aside the ranger, become who you were meant to be, become who you were born to be. I, I love that scene in the movie. It just gives me, gives me goosebumps, and it just makes me want to cheer. And, and it also reminds me of things that are analogous to the Christian life. Become who you were born to be. The Christian life is very much a life of becoming. The Bible continuously beckons us and calls us and commands us as believers to put aside our old nature. Put aside who we once were and become who we were born to be, or better yet, become who we were born again to be. And it is a life of becoming, a life where you are moving away from what you once were towards something that you are not fully yet. You are not what you you are not what you were, thanks to Christ. Everyone in this room is received, who has received Christ can, can share some sort of evidence or testimony of how you have become a new person now that you are in Christ. At the same time, however, though we are not what we once were, we are not yet everything that we are meant to be. And the Scriptures are continuous, continuously calling us to be who we really are to become who we are born again to be. We are sons and daughters of God. We have been adopted into His family. We will receive the universe as our inheritance. And our destiny is perfect holiness, perfectly glorifying God. And the Scriptures are constantly exhorting us to embrace that and to live up to that and to live in a way that is in keeping with who the Scriptures tell us that we are. This is exactly what Paul is saying in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4 when he says in verse 1, therefore a prisoner, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, Paul is telling the Ephesians and he is telling you become who you were born again to be. Put aside your old ways. Embrace who you really are. And what's significant here is that Paul shows us that if you're going to be who you really are, you have to live out your life, live out 
your calling in the context of Christian community. Because right after Paul exhorts you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, he immediately tells you how. And look at this. He focuses on how believers are to treat one another in the local congregation. He tells us to walk in verse 2, look at it with me, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's not something you can do if you're by yourself. That's not something you can do if you are one of those Lone Ranger Christians kind of just on your own and you're not a part of a Christian community. And Paul reminds us that Christianity is not just some personal thing. It's not about you and Jesus. Jesus did not die for a person. Jesus died for a people. And he died not so that you have a bunch of isolated Christians just kind of running around and doing their own thing. He died so that you have a people, a community, joined together in a spiritual family, dwelling in unity with one another. And and that unity is is maintained, Paul says, in how the members of the church treat one another. Paul reminds us, it reminds the Ephesian believers in chapters 2 and 3 that God through the gospel has broken down barriers that divide men. He has broken down walls between Jews and Gentiles. And they are now to be considered members of the same family with the same father awaiting the same glorious inheritance from that father. And those truths should have an impact on how believers and the local congregation are to treat one another. That, that, that should actually make a difference. If Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is true, then the natural outcome for believers is to treat one another with humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering, and they should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit that has come about through the gospel. But, on the other hand, if the church is bickering with one another, there's all this infighting going on, And that happens in a lot of churches. God forbid that we descend into that. But we are all susceptible to this. If the church ends up fighting one another and devouring one another and slandering one another and treating one another harshly and acting like they are not a united family, then that church is acting like they don't really believe that God has accomplished all the great things that Ephesians 1 through 3 says he accomplished. They really don't believe God has reconciled not only man to God, but man to man. They really don't believe that God through Christ and the gospel has broken down racial and class barriers and that all believers are equal members of the family. And we are sending a message to the world that this Christ that we preach is impotent and powerless and really has not done the things that we have said that Christ has done discord and disunity in the church is more serious than we think it is. Because when the church goes down this road, the church begins to tell lies about Jesus and tells lies about the gospel. However, this unity that that God has brought between Christians is not just any kind of unity. God is not interested in unity for unity's sake. The people at the Tower of Babel were united, weren't they? They were very united. They were all together. They were of the same mind. They had one goal. They had one purpose. They had one desire, and that being to exalt themselves and exalt their name above God's. 
And God responded to that kind of unity, how? By cursing it and scattering the people and judging them by causing disunity amongst the people through the confusion of their languages. So God is not interested in a unity that is centered on anything that is anti-God, that is anti-Christ. Rather, Paul tells us what the church is to be united around, starting in verse 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So God is building a people who are united not just around any old thing, but united around a common confession and united around the one true God. That's a very brief recap of where we were at last week, some of the things that we touched on. Now we move on to the second part of this section. What's interesting is that though there is unity in the body of Christ, Paul qualifies this statement. Unity does not mean that everyone is identical. You think about religious cults, for example. Maybe you've run into cult members, or maybe you've had some of them come to your door. And and you think about these really extreme cults that brainwash their members. And they separate them from family and friends. And they bring them into their own little group. And and, and there is a a unity there amongst these cult members. Everyone, but but it's a bland, monochrome kind of unity. It's it's, it's an identical kind of unity where everybody is exactly the same. Everybody looks the same. Everybody dresses the same. They have the same talking points. They have to do exactly the same thing. There's no freedom whatsoever. Everyone is a carbon copy of everyone else. That's not the kind of unity that Paul has in mind when he's thinking of Christian unity, where everyone is just a a Xerox copy of each other. It's, It's not a bland, boring, dull, replicated sort of unity. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. After he spends six verses talking about unity, he says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. When Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, he's not talking about saving grace here. The the kind of grace that, that leads to you being born again, that leads to you being saved. The grace here he is referring to has to do with the gifting of individuals within the church. God has gifted, he has given grace to each one of us, Paul says. And he has given different members of the church different spiritual gifts, different spirit-empowered abilities to serve the church. And this diversity of gifts within the body of Christ actually serves the purpose of building the church up towards unity. So in the church, you have unity in the midst of diversity. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. This is a great passage on spiritual gifts. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul 
beautifully weaves together both unity and diversity in this, in this passage. As we read through here, catch, catch where he emphasizes unity, and then when he emphasizes diversity, and then when he emphasizes unity. These two, two things are happening at the same time. Let's start at verse 4. But there are varieties of gifts. There is the uh, diversity there, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Did you catch the Trinitarian formula there, what Paul was saying? Verse 4, Paul mentions the Spirit. Verse 5, Paul mentions the same Lord. He's talking about Jesus there. And in verse 6, Paul mentions the same God. He's talking about the Father. You have this one God who is, who is diverse in his very being. Three persons in this singularly united Godhead. And this one God empowers the members of the church with spiritual gifts. So look at verse 7. It says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now that sounds a lot like we just, what we just read in Ephesians 4, where Paul says in Ephesians 4, 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, now back to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now verse 12, Paul says, for just as the body is one, that's unity right there, just as the body is one and has many members, that's the diversity, and all the members of the body, though many, that's the diversity, are one body, that's the unity, so it is with Christ. Paul goes on to write in verse 13, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, that's unity. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. That's diversity. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but many. There's the diversity. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not, a, not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, that's kind of freaky, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? It, it, it is kind of freaky when you think of that, but that, this is Paul's point, is that if you just have a giant eye or a giant ear, that's a monstrosity. That's, that's, that's not a body as it's meant to be. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And you skip on down to verse 27. Paul says, now you are the body. That's the unity there. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. There's the diversity again. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Those questions that Paul is asking in verse 29 and in verse 30 are rhetorical questions because he's already answered those questions in the previous verses. So when Paul says, are all teachers, if we've been paying attention to the prior verses, we should say, no, not all are not teachers. When Paul asks, are all prophets, if we've been paying attention to the prior verses, our response should be, no, of course not. All are not prophets. All are not gifted in the same way. There's a diversity. There is a variety of gifts in the body of Christ. So now, let's go back to Ephesians 4. The point here is that in the church, there is to exist this amazing unity centered on God, grounded in the fact that through the gospel, Christ has reconciled man to God and man to man, Jews and Gentiles, black people and white people, men and women, rich people and poor people, and they are no longer at enmity with one another. They are now all part of the same family, and they are all united around and centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, there is this, there's this amazing diversity within the body of Christ, within the church at the same time. The church is the body of Christ, and like a physical body, the church has different and diverse parts, and they are all meant to function in harmony and in agreement with one another, even as they are exercising differing roles and functions. And this, by the way, mirrors and images the Trinity. What do you have in the Godhead? You have unity and diversity. You have unity in a sense where you have one God, and you have the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and they are all united, and they are all they all have a, a singular purpose. They're not going in different directions. There is a unity there. But at the same time, within the Godhead, you have uh, diversity. The Father is not identical to the Son. The Son is not identical to the Spirit. There are some who teach that. That's wrong. That's, that's unbiblical. You, you have the, 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 the Father having a different role than the Son, and the Son having a different role uh, in ministry than the Spirit. There is, a, there is a diversity even in the midst of that unity, and one of the, the purposes of the church is to image that, is to reflect something that is true in the Godhead. What this means is that every single believer here at Harbin's has some sort of role, some sort of function. Paul says grace was given not just to a few of us, but to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The idea that a few people are to serve and to minister in the church and that everyone else is to sit on the sidelines is completely foreign to New Testament thinking, completely foreign to New Testament thought. But there are many churches that function in this way. You have, um, uh, you've got a handful of people serving, and you've got everyone else kind of just along for the ride. And they're being served, and they're on the sidelines, and they're not serving or ministering at all. There was a, uh, a papal document in 1906 from the, from the Catholic Church, and 
it said this, and this really sums up how a lot of, lot of churches do things. This is what it, it says. As for the masses, that's like all of y'all, as for the masses, they have no other rights than of letting themselves be led and of following their pastors as docile, as a docile flock. In other words, according to that papal document, that's, if, if you're not like one of the pastors, basically, you know, uh, one, one of the ministers in the congregation, you, you just kind of are like dumb sheep just following along and you're not doing anything. You're just kind of being led around, you're, you're docile, basically. You've got a few people ministering, you've got everyone else being ministered to. When many churchgoers think of the work of the ministry, their first thought is, well, that's what we pay the pastors for. And that idea has been around for a very long time. And what's very interesting is that an old mistranslation of Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, probably contributed to this idea. This is very interesting uh, in, in older versions of the Bible, there was a small but significant error that might have contributed to the notion that you've just got a few ministers doing everything and the laity doing nothing. And that error is found in the original King James. Uh, in, uh, if you look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, in the original King James, there is a comma where there should not be a comma. And that one comma changes everything. Now, if you've got a more recent King James Bible, and I'm assuming you do if you have King James, you won't see that, that insert a comma, because it's, it's since been corrected. But the original King James gets it wrong. And, and we're, we're about to get a little technical here, but I want you to follow this closely, because it's a great demonstration of how Accurate Bible translations are important and how reading the Bible closely and carefully is very significant and also should cause us to thank God that, that, um, that God throughout the ages raises up uh, men and scholars who are well versed in the original languages who can help spot and point out uh, and, and uh, uh, things that are uh, not the best translations and can refine uh, our, um, our translations of Scripture. Um, in the original King James, and you look, look with me at verses four, or chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. In the original King James, the text says that he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, comma. Okay, does anybody have a comma in your Bible after it says equip the saints? I hope not. Okay. Old King James puts a comma there to equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body. Now, if that translation is correct, then you, basically then what you have is you have these ministers in the church doing three different things. They have three different jobs. <clears throat> they are given to the church to equip the saints, they are given to the church for the work of the ministry, and they are given to the, uh, to the church for the building up of the body. Three separate tasks. The problem is that that translation is wrong and has since been corrected, and your Bible should not have that extra 
comma in there. There should be no comma after Paul says, shepherds and teachers. And our modern Bibles remove that comma. And when you remove that comma, it totally changes everything that the passage is saying. It actually says the exact opposite. Let's go back at it and look at it now. And let's look at the corrected verse. Verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now in the old text... And I hope I got this right when I just said this. In the old text, it would say to equip the saints and then comma. Yeah, to equip the saints and then comma for the work of ministry. But here, though, you don't see the comma. It just says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That says something totally, totally different. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers not to do all the ministry in the church while everyone else just sits back and watches them do it, That's not what the text says. The text says that the job of these specific people in the church are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So in the incorrect translation, you had these gifted ministers in the church, and they had just three jobs. They had three jobs. But in the correct translation, we see that the ministers have one job, and that's to equip the saints. And then the saints have one job, and that's to do the work of the ministry. And these things are happening in the church for one purpose, to build up the body of Christ. Now, I hope I explained that correctly. I got myself a little tongue-tied talking about commas and all that. So if I lost you, I'm more than happy to sit with you after this and, and, and get with you on that. Um, now, who are the saints that are being equipped by evangelists and shepherds and teachers? You are the saints according to the Bible, if you are in Christ. So the work of the ministry at Harbin's Church is not solely my job, and it's not Pastor Steve's job solely. It's your job, and Steve and I are supposed to equip you for the work of the ministry. Now, the implications for this, for us, is huge. It means that equippers who don't equip and are trying to do it all are not obeying the Bible. And it also means that saints who are not doing the work of ministry, if they're not in some way serving in order to build up the body of Christ, they are being disobedient. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that to, to serve and to exercise your gifts on behalf of the church, you've got to be a part of some kind of official, programmatic ministry here at Harbin's. Many, if not most of you, are going to be exercising your gifts in a very informal and behind-the-scenes way. If you have the gift of hospitality, you can exercise that gift to build up the body of Christ by just quietly being behind the scenes and going through the church directory and inviting your brothers and sisters in Christ over to your place to encourage them and to love them and to build them up. You may have a teaching gift. You don't have to teach some official class at Harbin's. You can exercise that gift to build up the body of Christ through finding someone to mentor and disciple. You have a mercy gift. You don't have to head up some sort of official mercy ministry at Harbin's. Go and visit a fellow church member who's sick in the hospital and exercise your mercy gift. If you are 
not exercising your spiritual gifts, or if you don't know what your gifting is and you just need some help moving in the right direction, I'd be happy to talk with you about that sometime, or Steve would love to talk to you about that sometime, and we can hopefully point you in the right direction. This sort of view of church life that Paul's giving us in Ephesians 4 is very different than the the common uh, American version of Christianity and the church, where Christianity is a a very individualized thing, where it's a very personalized thing. We tend to be very consumeristic about church, and it's about our happiness and our preferences and our needs being met, and us being served, and if we don't feel like, our church, uh, feel like our church is meeting those felt needs, we just go down the road and we see if the next one will meet my felt needs. And Paul paints a, a different picture, a different portrait of church life, where the church is not uh, a bunch of rogue individuals just kind of thinking about themselves and feeding themselves. Rather, each individual is part of something that is much bigger than himself. And everyone has a part and a function and a service and a role that uh, helps the body as a whole to function properly and be built up and healthy. Paul tells us one of the purposes of these uh, spiritual gifts that God has given us is unity. It goes back to unity. Paul says these gifts and these gifted people are existing for the church until, verse 13, look, Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, this concept of unity comes up. It is a reoccurring theme in Paul's writings. There is a unity that God is restoring. A unity that existed once, long ago, was destroyed, and now through the gospel, God is reestablishing that unity. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. If you look at verses 8 through 10, Paul reminds us these, these, these gifts that Christ is giving, us to the, giving to the church, these gifts that he's given you and me, he, he's reminding us that these things came about as a result of Christ's cosmic victory over the evil powers and principalities that led man into rebellion, which caused the breaking of united fellowship between man and God and man and man in the first place. It was the devil that saw man's perfect unity and relationship with God. It was the devil that saw Adam's perfect unity and fellowship with Eve, and the devil aimed to ruin it all. He knew that if he could lead Adam astray, if he could entice Adam to sin, that would undo man's relationship with God and man's relationship with one another. And that's exactly what took place in Genesis 3. Adam sins. He hides from God. He doesn't want God anymore. And that's been the legacy of Adam's descendants until this very day. Adam sins and his relationship with Eve is disrupted. Adam blames Eve and tells God, if anyone is worthy of God's judgment, it's her. Because it's all her fault. And that legacy of strife and division continued with Adam's sons. Cain strove against Abel and killed him. And that strife and that division continues on through Adam's descendants even to this day. And what's more, God created man in his own image. Man was meant to image God, to represent him in the world, to reflect back to the world what God is like. 
But when man sinned, that image became warped. It became marred. It became perverted and now shows a distorted image of the glory of God. So, then when, so, so much to the devil's delight, the devil who hates God's glory, much to the devil's delight, when man spreads across the world, it wasn't the perfect glory of God filling the earth. Rather, it was a distorted, lying image of God filling the earth. So man's fellowship with God, broken. Man's fellowship with others, broken. The, the wicked unseen powers and principalities declared war on God, and man joined them in their revolt against God. And yet God is not only a God of love and of mercy and of patience and forgiveness. Our God also is a God of war and a God who will fight for those he loves. Remember, Paul reminds us in Ephesians earlier on in chapter 1 that before the foundation of the earth, he had a people, he had a bride chosen for himself, the church. And the devil and his legions wanted to kill that bride, wanted to snuff it out and make her join him. And yet God, this great cosmic groom, fights for those he loves. He fights for his bride. He fights for his own glory and honor. Those are, there are two things that you don't mess with. You don't mess with God's bride. You don't mess with God's glory. If you do that, it's over. It's done. You've just committed suicide. Because if you wage war against God, he will wage war against you, and you will lose. And God announced his declaration of war against the serpent in Genesis 3.15 when he said to the serpent, you will bruise the heel of the woman's offspring and the woman's offspring will come and crush your head. And listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4 about the serpent crusher, about the offspring of the woman who would come and fix the mess that Adam made. Ephesians 4, let's actually start at verse 7. Look at this with me. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now what's Paul doing? Paul's quoting something there. Paul's quoting the Psalms. Paul's quoting Psalm 68. And now Paul gives further commentary in verse 9. Where Paul says, in saying, he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul is quoting from Psalm 68. Now if you read the whole psalm, it's, it's a wonderful psalm, you realize it's a victory psalm. Psalm 68 is all about victory. And it talks about the Lord as a warrior, one who conquers his enemies and rescues and defends and protects his people. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is showing us how to interpret this psalm and the victories of God in the Old Testament. The victories and the mighty acts of God in the Old Testament are pointing us forward to a greater victory that Christ will win later on. The Bible talks about Jesus leading a host of captives. Again, look there at verse, 
verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. When the Bible's talking about Jesus leading a host of captives, it's, in, it's, it's imagery taken from war in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when a king went out to battle and he would defeat his enemies, he would capture the survivors, the enemy survivors, he would bind them, and he would lead them back to his city in a procession, in a parade. And that this parading of the captured enemies before the people was a demonstration of the king's power and superiority over his enemies. And it was a way to completely shame and humiliate the king's foes. Really, this, this victory parade, this victory procession, is a way of saying, I'm superior to my enemies. I'm greater than these enemies. I'm more powerful than these enemies. These enemies cannot hurt you anymore. They are completely and utterly in my power. It was very exalting and glorifying to the king and very humiliating for the enemies to be in that procession. And so Paul is telling us in Ephesians 4, this is like what Christ did when he came to earth and took on the dark powers and principalities that sought to destroy his bride and destroy his glory, Jesus, when he descended to the lower regions, as Paul said, when he came to earth, he met the devil head on, and Satan and his minions threw everything that they had at Jesus, even death itself, yet through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus crushed the devil. And I love how Paul puts it in Colossians 2.15. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2 about Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, by triumphing over them in him. Again, Paul has uh, in his mind this image of uh, public humiliation and embarrassment of the enemies of God, the devil and his demons. Uh, put on display and paraded before the people, shaming them. But Paul not only says he led a host of captives, Paul also says, Ephesians 4, that he gave gifts to men. Another part of these victory parades in the ancient world was not just a display of the vanquished enemies in this procession, but if the king was generous, there was also a, a um, distribution of the booty. The spoils of war amongst the people. The, the, the king would share the spoils with his people. He would give gifts to them, and the people would share in this great victory in this way by receiving these gifts from the conquering king. So the image is that of Christ returning from great battle, vanquishing his foes, publicly humiliating and shaming them, and generously giving gifts to his people so we share in Christ's victory. And what are the gifts that Christ is freely giving and lavishing upon his people? It's not gold or silver. It's spiritual gifts. And again, look with me at verse 13 and following. Let's again look at the purpose of these gifts. Verse 13. These gifts are here. They're available until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that 
we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ as the conquering king, has returned from battle, and he, he's sharing the spoils with his people. And, and these spoils are gifts which will lead to the very things that the devil originally stole from us. These gifts are serving the purpose of attaining unity, Paul says, unity between man and God and man and man that was shattered by sin. Now Jesus comes back from conquest, giving us gifts that will be the means of rebuilding that which was once lost. And what else was lost? Well, that perfect image of God that Adam bore before the fall. But now, thanks to the victory of our conquering king, Jesus returns from battle with gifts. Not only gifts that work towards unity, but also gifts that work towards restoring and perfecting God's image in us. Paul says these gifts are to move us along to mature manhood, to move us towards the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we are to grow up in every way into Christ, so that we can become who we were born again to be. That being a people who are in perfect fellowship with God, a people who are in perfect fellowship with one another, a people who more and more and more and more will be conformed to the image of Christ. Ephesians 4 reminds us that though God is sovereign, God uses means to accomplish his ends. And the, and the church is not to be passive as we grow to full spiritual maturity. We're not just to sit around and just do nothing. Rather, we are to, as Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are to be humble and gentle and patient and loving with one another. We are not to be passive in regards to service to the church. We are to be actively using the gifts that Christ has given us, gifts that he paid for in battle with his blood, gifts that, that, won for us, that were won for us in his battle and defeat over the evil powers and principalities who once held us in captivity. We have a role. We have a part to play. God doesn't need any of us, but he has ordained that you be a part of his plan to mature the body of Christ and move it towards fullness and perfection. I love what Martin Luther wrote in 1521. Listen to what Luther said. He said, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing towards it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 28 and following. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I say to that, amen. Church, become who you were born again to be. And Paul is going to flesh out in greater detail what this looks like in the church. Amongst us here in the local congregation, as we move through Ephesians in the following weeks, it's going to flesh out what this looks like between husbands and wives, between parents and kids, between people in a work environment. Paul's going to get extremely practical in the, in the remaining sections of Ephesians, and he will show us what becoming who we were born again to be actually looks like in everyday life. So stay tuned. That's where we'll be going over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the power of the cross, for what the cross has done. You have disarmed the powers and principalities. You have taken a people who were held under the power of the devil, and you have released us, Father. But you have not released us without any purpose. You have released us to be who you want us to be. You have released us to image God, to show the glory of God to the cosmos. And this small, local, imperfect congregation here at Harbin's is a part of that. Thank you so much for making us a part of that. And though we are imperfect, and though we have problems, and we struggle with sin, and sometimes we do butt heads here, Father, we trust that you who began a good work in us, you're going to complete that. You're not just going to leave us in our mess. You're not just going to leave us in our sin. But you're working us and you're, you're working through us and you're growing us and you're moving us towards mature manhood. Thank you that our sanctification is not up to us and our power. You empower us, Father. Father, I pray that you would help us to live out and the things that it talks about in Ephesians 4 and how we are to treat one another in the body of Christ and how we are to move to mature manhood and how we are not to be blown about and to and fro being deceived by false doctrines and ungodly teachings, but that you will help us to become everything that we were born again to be. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to play a song during our response time, and you can respond through prayer. You can respond through giving your tithes and offerings, turning in your prayer request. You can go ahead and play the song. You can respond by singing along.
right, you may be seated. And uh, one real uh, technical note um, about the sermon. I, I, I got a little tongue-tied there when I was talking about that comma, and uh, I apologize about that, and I was just uh, going through my notes again. I, and I just want to clarify, in that, that old translation, the comma is after equip the saints, okay? And that's the comma that should be removed, and that was eventually removed. And I think a little bit later on, I I accidentally said that the comma was in another place. So if you, if you got confused along with me, I'm sorry about that, and uh, I'm happy to talk with you further and, uh, and, and clarify that more. Um, last week, uh, we were going to show you a, a quick, short video. Uh, we couldn't do it then, but we're able to do it now uh, about Lifesong for Orphans and their child sponsorship program. Uh, this is a, a wonderful ministry, and there's a, this is a great way that you can help out uh, children in need uh, uh, in Africa and Liberia and, uh, uh, and other places where Lifesong is doing their work. So why don't you go ahead and roll that video and um, do we have that ready? Thank you.